Good afternoon, everyone. So we had a little bit of difficulty. This is the first time, well, technically it's the second time we're doing this. Uh, we had our COVID-19 founder panel um, earlier, earlier this week. Um, so we said, you know, the second time this will be easy. We had some technical difficulties, but um, here we are. Uh, for the ones that don't know us, um, I'm Michael. Uh, I'm a partner at Golden Gate Ventures. Uh, been with the firm for the last uh, last seven to eight years. Um, had a phenomenal time in, in Singapore, and it is great to have you all here. Um, the, the initial idea of this this um, uh, this workshop was to host a face-to-face um, -face and an online panel. Well, given the current situation, we wanted to make sure that everyone stays safe and healthy. Uh, so it's a fully, fully online panel. The only people that are here are the great people from BTCN that are helping us filming this and setting, setting this up. Um, and we also have an additional surprise. We have these two amazing gentlemen um, helping us today, answering your questions when it comes to any legal questions you might have around your term sheets, negotiations, anything that revolves around, around fundraising. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about Matthew and, and Farish from, from Cooley. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, but let's first kind of talk through what's going to happen this afternoon. <clears throat> so two items. Um, we have a sort of a presentation for you guys and, and explain what it means to be fundraising as a, as a founder. Um, what does it mean to kind of go through the cycle of meeting investors, getting the deal pipeline going, um, calling cold leads, uh, making sure your pitch deck is, is in order. Um, everything that needs to be done to do fundraising. Now the funny part is, well, actually not that funny. Um, a lot of founders are, I'd say nervous when it comes to fundraising. It is asking for money, it's asking for capital. Um, how do I go about it? Um, how do I meet these investors that meet thousands of companies every single year? Um, how do I stand out? And then we have this additional complexity of COVID-19. So what does it mean to fundraise in a crisis? Um, how do I make sure that when I had a fundraising plan for September this year, uh, what do I do now? So we'll be discussing all of these items um, later today. Uh, but first, Matthew, Ferris, um, very, very happy to have you have you both here. And here. again, thank you so much. Thanks for um, could I briefly ask you guys, who's Cooley? What, what does Cooley do? And, and maybe also give a little bit of background about yourselves as well. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, so uh, Cooley, we're a law firm international law firm. Um, and what we focus on is we're a full service law firm, but we focus on particularly on representing companies, investors in the venture capital ecosystem. So it's anything from the proverbial founder raising their seed stage fundraise, investors into uh, backing great founders, all the way up through the proverbial life cycle. So companies that are looking to do growth, late stage fundraises, IPOs, exits, and all the, and almost all of the legal uh, advisory work that occurs, whether it's ESOPs, tax related questions, um, acquisitions, you, you fundraising. It. Fundraising, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Topic to yeah. So that's a, that's a focus. So Matt and I set up our Singapore office. Um, I'll let Matt introduce himself. I've been in Asia for, it's gonna show age, uh, for quite a number of years, for about 10 years. Um, been in Singapore for about coming up on six years and have, uh, my practice, what Matt also does, uh, you know, we focus on representing founders and VCs um, 
across life cycle. Awesome. Okay. Thanks again for being here. Yeah. yeah. Matt? Um, yes, my name is Matt. Uh, I'm a, a partner at Cooley as well. I actually, um, I'm the chair of our global venture capital and emerging companies group. And um, I spent the last 20 years in Silicon Valley. And when we opened Singapore, we thought this is such a strategic market, such an important uh, part of the world that I decided to relocate family out here. Um, decided to come right before the global pandemic. <laughs> that would just be a really you know, terrific time to come and launch an office. But we're still super bullish on the region. Um, as, founders, as Fair said, we represent founders, represent uh, venture funds, and um, sort of a whole life cycle practice of companies. So we do 1,500 venture deals a year. So we, we, we are pretty familiar with the space. Amazing. Yeah. Good. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's, today it's, it's about you. It's about the people that are, are trying to fundraise and kind of get through, um, get through these you know, difficult months or, or may, maybe even years. Um, we'll make sure that you have enough opportunity to ask any question that, that you want. And you know what the good thing is about doing it online? So usually when you're in the audience, you might feel a little bit nervous about asking a question and raising your hand. You can ask anything you want. Um, so, well, not anything. Yeah. Um, if it's about fundraising, you can ask anything about fundraising um, or term sheets. Uh, but yeah, please feel free to ask uh, questions throughout the session. Uh, we have a uh, app, what is called uh, Pigeonhole. And just want to check with Winnie that Pigeonhole is up and running. So um, we can basically take on uh, basically take on questions. So we're going to do something really um, difficult right now. We're going to uh, bring up a presentation so you guys can kind of um, we walk you through the fundraising the fundraising workshop because we have to do it uh, digitally. You'll see the the presentation um, will become a little bit little bit smaller, uh, but we'll be back with you guys in a in a few seconds. Um, so let's bring up the the presentation, guys. Perfect. Awesome. Um, so I'm probably going to skip a few slides if you guys are if you guys are fine uh, because we already know it's it's the fundraising uh, one-on-one -on -one workshop Golden um, Gate Ventures uh, Cooley. Um, we kind of went through um, who we who we are in in terms of the firm, so um, you know happy to skip. But if you have any questions, feel free feel free to ask us feel free to ask us as well. Um, if you're keen to learn a bit more about our background, um, you know, feel free to um, um, kind of look at look at the deck. And uh, for anyone that has a question in the invite, uh, there's a link to the uh, to the pigeonhole site. So if there's any question, feel free feel free to ask. Um, based on how many votes the questions will get, uh, we'll be able to kind of manage uh, managing your your questions from from our side. Uh, but please, again, feel free to keep on uh, keep on asking, keep on asking all the questions. So the first thing I basically want to do is run through the venture and investor landscape, and why that's important. Um, it's very important to understand before you go out fundraising is what kind of environment am, am I fundraising in? Um, who am I speaking to? Uh, who is sitting at the other side of the table? What are their concerns? Um, but then run through what does fundraising exactly mean? What do I need to do? How do I prepare myself? Um, then we'll get these guys involved. Um, you know, Farish, Matthew, we've got some difficult questions for you guys on, on term sheets. Um, always a big, big part of big part of fundraising. How do I, you know, there's liquidation preference, man. Just, just help us out there. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, we'll quickly touch on, uh, touch on pitch deck and then we'll, we'll kind of go through um, some Q and A. What I'll do in between to make sure that you guys don't fall asleep mm -hmm. is I'll try to answer some questions in between, uh, in between doing the presentation. 
just to keep it more just to keep it more lively so keep those questions coming so quickly talking about the um, um, and I hope you guys are able to see there's these kind of two uh, two graphs where um, on the one hand we've seen a number of um, large deals happen in in the region and whether it's you know the likes of Gojek or Grab or you know maybe Traveloka, Bukala Park. You know all these names have raised massive, massive funding rounds. Um, what is interesting, we've also seen a big increase in let's say smaller companies raising uh, raising capital. So the interesting part about fundraising is always you know there's so much liquidity in the market. With so much liquidity in the market, it should be easy to fundraise, right? Um, if all these investors are sitting on 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 a bunch of money should be super easy to fundraise. Well, we're gonna talk about the complexities of, of fundraising as well. Um, maybe some interesting statistics. Um, in 2019, we've already had a smaller, kind of a decrease in these large funding rounds. Uh, so these bigger companies haven't raised as much in 2019 as they have in 2018. Interestingly enough, we've seen more companies that were at the sub $50 million range that were raising, uh, that we saw an increase of those companies raising capital. So the companies that are raising those seed, series A, series B rounds, we saw an increase of that number. Um, interesting to know. So again, the capital at the early stage, definitely widely available. Uh, we saw a smaller decrease in, uh, in the later stage funding rounds. So the question then becomes, and, and we all know this guy from Breaking Bad, um, the question then becomes, you know, does all this capital in the market, does it make, does it, make it easier to fundraise? Um, my answer is no. Um, you might think, well, you know, I've seen all these uh, tech in Asia blogs or E27 or TechCrunch of all these companies doing these massive rounds and, and fundraising like mad. Um, yeah, true. Uh, we have seen a lot of companies uh, go to market and, and raise capital, but it doesn't make the fundraising process itself easier. Um, the complexity of uh, negotiating, and, and we'll talk about it later with, with, with Matt and, and Ferris as well, the, the complexity of negotiating, the complexity of getting the right terms, um, valuation, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about valuation um, uh, later on as well. Um, all this comes into the fundraising process. And if you think of that you need money in the next three months and you're starting to fundraise now, um, really think about, oh man, I have to do my deck. I have to get roadshows. I have to build a pipeline of investors. All of this stuff needs to be done before you even get to talking to investors or talking about term sheets or closing the deal or getting money to the bank. You've been in the region for, for a very long time, yeah. been active in, in helping startups, um, or even in, in, the fundraising, in the fundraising process. You, you've kind of seen this, this, this optic. What has been the biggest change that you've seen in, in say the last year, year and a half when it comes to the fundraising landscape here? So I think it's a number of things, but the one that I think is most remarkable is exactly what you described, which is, is that there are, there's a lot of capital, but that capital is distributed across a lot of players, a lot of different investors. And so for founders and their teams, the, exactly as you said, a lot of the extra work, so capital isn't easier to get because the process of doing the selection and the sifting and the sorting of who you're targeting, right, is a little bit more challenging um, because not only is it, you're exactly correct, it's okay, who's early stage focus, who may be growth stage focus, but then also 
who's focused or who's deep within the given sector that my business is in. Are they really playing in my business? Maybe even if it's Singapore top growth, maybe Indonesia focus, is this an experienced VC? So long way of saying that I think over the last year and a half, um, but really over the last like, few years, it's been differentiation of all of the various investors and the navigation that founders have to go through that to figure out who's the right person to go to. And, and maybe Matt, so one thing people always tend to look at is, you know, uh, the US um, as, as, as an example. Um, what are some of the lessons that you can bring from the US to Saudi's agent founders as they are fundraising? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the really key differences that I've noticed out here is in the US, we have a very large network of um, founders who have made money, who are investing. They're very smart investors. They're very strategic in value add. And it's not hard to sift through those people. Yeah. Maybe it's hard to find them and really engage with them. But these are people who you really want in your cap table. They actually give more than money. And um, I think you know for the, for the market to develop out here, you really need to understand who's on your cap table. Yeah. You know, you, you had said, you know, you might waste a lot of time talking to a late stage investor. You might actually get money from them and that may not be a good thing mm -hmm. because now you have a misaligned investor who's maybe taking a bet on you or, you know, um, just kind of keeping, keeping their foot in the door. So really important to know who's on your cap table, resist the early the sort of urge to just get, you know, whatever funds you can, maybe in this environment, it's a little different, mm -hmm. but really understand who you're kind of getting in bed with because you can't get them off the cap table yeah. and you really want people who are going to help you scale and build a business. Yeah. Um, and then maybe just one, one quick question. Um, so I had a founder that, that WhatsApp me before, before, before I came here. And, and one of the biggest questions he asked was, you know, when I'm, um, I'm like super, super early stage, you know, thinking of raising like 250 K, uh, my, my first round, um, and, you know, give a transparent answer. Um, should he be engaging a lawyer at this point in time? Or are you guys saying, this is way too early, wait until you get to series A and then it makes, it makes much more sense. Just get a, get a sense for you guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the simple answer is you actually do need a lawyer. Yeah. You, you really have, you have to have a lawyer to do certain formalities. The real question is who is the lawyer? Are they, are they properly aligned with sort of where you're, where you're at cost structure? You know, cost is not the only thing. There's experience. They're setting things up because a lot of the things you do now will impact future rounds down the road. Um, so, you know, the thing that we always tell founders is, uh, sorry, it's, it's thunderstorm here. Um, the thing we always tell founders is, you know, if they come to us and we're not really right for them, yeah. we'll help them. We'll give them some advice. We'll we'll refer them to the right people. Mm -hmm. If we think, hey, this is actually an area where, you know, it makes sense for us to be involved maybe it's a deep tech company, maybe it's a life sciences company, there's different characteristics, then, you know, we'll tell them, yeah, we think it makes sense and we'll work with you. So it's, we try to play the long game with people, not yeah. sort of just get every small seed deal. Okay, yeah. interesting. So that's, that's, that's really good to know. Sorry. Yeah, and to reinforce Matt's point, it's a lot of the <clears throat> proverbial train tracks are laid down in the early rounds in terms of governance rights, shareholder rights. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but it's important to make sure that you're well advised, um, keeping in mind the points that Matt highlighted, because yeah. you never want to be misaligned or you don't want to be giving up uh, ground yeah. early on, um, even though the quantums may be small, 
the ground being potentially yielded can be worth quite a lot. Yeah. Um, that's really helpful. Thank, thank you both. Um, I, I added one slide. I was going to talk about sort of other capital sources, uh, sort of other than sort of your typical your, your typical VC. I think what is interesting, um, and then Matt, you mentioned, you know, in the U.S., uh, founders are becoming investors, and you want to have them on the cap table because they're able to add value. Um, we're seeing something similar here, and it might not be as much founders, although we have some examples, but we are seeing those bigger unicorns uh, making investments and even acquisitions as well. So it's very good to be aware of, do I want to kind of take this capital on board, yes or no? Um, it definitely has its advantages. You know, if, if it's strategic, um, might not always be a fit if there's any commercial rights that, that you might need to uh, might need to give up. Um, we talked a little bit about, about the latest stage as well. And, you know, funny enough, we are seeing the, the stock exchanges just getting more and more um, um, involved as well. You know, the new stock exchanges try to do more here as well. Um, you know, Singapore Stock Exchange has had different initiatives. So it's sort of good for um, everyone to know kind of what the entire environment, environment looks like. Good news is, if we look at the venture landscape in uh, Southeast Asia and sort of the different investors and the different states of investors, um, so what we did is we, we took um, an interesting slide uh, we, we took from, uh, from the Ken, um, and they show how venture has grown in, um, uh, in the region. Um, you know, if you go back to 2012, you had kind of a few investors that were putting some early stage bets to work. Um, if you look at the landscape now, and this is on the, the right side of the, uh, of the slide, there's a large number of investors uh, playing in this field. So these are the likes of uh, TPG doing growth, uh, KKR late stage, uh, corporates like Alibaba, Hanwha, uh, Rakuten, but also early stage investors, you know, look at Wavemaker, um, Bansiad, which is doing um, angel investing, the Xugra network. So there's a big mixture of late stage to mid stage, growth venture, um, early stage, and really early pre-seed and angel investing. So you can basically say if we navigate through this landscape and you are fundraising, you really have to think about which investor am I talking to when? If you are a company that is you know, pre-idea, um, you have an amazing idea, you're putting it on paper, you need some pre-seed capital uh, to do some coding, uh, to, you know, to, to pay some developers, you're not gonna talk to a late stage investor. Um, just like you know we want to put at least 50 million dollars to work you're raising 100k that doesn't really work so you really need to understand what does the what does the investor landscape look like the reason why that's important is you don't want to waste time talking to the wrong investor um, you don't want to spend weeks in weeks out answering questions sending over stuff and knowing that this investor in the end will not invest so spend your time wisely and we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about that as well um, so I quickly want to uh, touch upon um, yeah what what does it mean for for startups to fundraise and I have this like funny um, I guess it's a dragon or, or yeah, dinosaur it's <laughs> yeah I'm not, not sure what it is but it's a uh, um, it's it's a very funny uh, funny it's a very long tail yeah it's a very long tail um, so it's a funny dinosaur I found this from um, uh, from Quip um, and the reason why I thought this was funny because this is actually true right and and um, the business of venture capital um, is definitely unusual. Um, so, you know, for the first part, as a founder, um, it's good to realize that um, venture is pretty unusual for, for a few reasons. I always say we have sort of two types of clients. Um, so the first one is we need to invest in amazing companies. 
And if we're unable to invest in amazing companies, um, we're not going to we're not going to kind of make 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 our returns as an investor. On the other hand, we have what we call limited partners. Those are investors that put money into our fund that we deploy into um, hopefully amazing amazing founders. Um, Returning that capital to our investors is something that is really, uh, really difficult because the, um, the riskiness of those investments are relatively high. If you invest in a seed stage company, so you as a founder, you and your, your, your buddy have just decided we're going to build this company. You might have an experience in insurance or logistics or healthcare or education and then decide, you know, we want to do this for the next 10, 15 years of our lives and it's going to be an amazing company. That is a pretty big bet to take um, as, as, as an investment firm. The chances of you as a founder becoming extremely successful is actually pretty low. Um, and that reflects the, the returns that we make as investors as well. Um, I'm going to get to the good part, by the way, mm -hmm. um, but it, it is the reality. So a lot of the companies that um, VCs invest in, um, they tend either not to make it or not generate a significant enough return for a fund to be called a top tier fund. The reason why I'm showing this is the moment you pitch to a investor, the investor would have in his mind, is this potentially going to be a home run? And a home run basically means that your company that you're building and the risk you're taking needs to return the fund that we're investing and preferably a little bit more. Um, the reason why I'm putting it like this is it is good to understand that dynamic. Um, so all the questions we're asking about how are you going to execute and how big is your market and, and how, do you, how do you see the, the next round of funding and who are your partners and what is your background? So all those annoying questions is just for us as investors to better understand what your plans are for the, for the longer term. And if we're able to make the dollar, $10 uh, when, when we exit. Um, so just to give that perspective of venture is a very unusual creature. Some people say it's an art. Not sure if we want to go that far, but it's definitely an unusual creature, and it's good to kind of have this have this background. Can I actually add something? To yeah, sure, said, please, please do. Is, uh, yeah, I think it's real really important as a founder to also understand. First of all, you can be a really successful business without being a successful venture back business, and really being self aware as to whether you're a venture backable company is a really important thing. And if, yeah. if you're, you know, if you're talking to great VCs like Michael you know, they'll tell you that, and that's not necessarily a negative, but that's, you might be more successful. You might make more money not taking venture capital. I think just understanding that as a company and being self-aware is very important yeah. because of this unusual creature slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So this, this is one of the, um, it's actually one of the biggest things that we, we are trying to try to solve for. Um, so just on a typical average, you know, any given VC in, in this region, maybe it's more in the US, uh, we look at around a thousand companies every single year. Um, so yeah, again, you have to really stand out in terms of the potential for um, given return uh, to, uh, to investors. Awesome. So I talked about some statistics. So um, if, you go to the, um, if you go to the next slide, um, we actually have, um, this is very interesting. So I, I, I looked this up um, last night and I'm, I'm trying to paint this picture to scare you guys a little bit. Um, for the main reason is, if you purely look at the number of companies that are started every single day, every single minute, um, it's quite staggering. So um, it's interesting that, I, let me just look up the numbers real quick. 
Um, so we have around 192 million businesses um, that have gone past initial launch. So can you imagine that you're in whichever industry you're in, every single day that you have an idea, someone else would have the same idea somewhere else. Um, and then the statistics say that 90% of new startups uh, tend to fail. So only 10% has a survival rate. Um, there's, there's a bit of amb ambiguity with this, this statistic. People think it's higher, so people think it's lower, but we can say that the majority of companies that start um, don't make it, don't make it in, in, until the end. Um, what is also interesting is that failure has been most common in years two and five, between years two and five. So you finally got over the big hump of year one, you're in year two, and this is actually where the stress, stress starts. More importantly, that's what we're talking about today, um, in 29% of the cases that where companies fail, it's due to funding and it's due to running out of cash. So it's very, very important to really understand um, what cash looks like. Okay, so I've been told by the production team that we're gonna take a very short break. Um, it will be about two minutes max. This is an amazing time to make some coffee, put the kids to bed, maybe it's <laughs> a bit too early for that, but at least do something oh, yeah, different, yeah. stretch the legs for a few minutes, and then we'll be back in exactly two minutes. See you in a bit. Or a quick drink. Well, it's 5.35 in Singapore, so you can grab a beer actually if you, if you want to. Um, oh, places are closed though. Oh, places are closed. <laughs> places are closed. Yeah, I, I, ordered, I ordered some beer yesterday. <laughs> there you uh, go. Delivered at home. Um, so we got a few questions which I actually want to take on before uh, before moving moving alongside moving along to the other slides. But I would love for you guys to chime in as well. So I'm just going to pick. You know. Just... Oh, here we go. This oh, this this is definitely for you guys. Um, if you had to prioritize, what would be the most important clause on a term sheet? that you would not compromise on. Depends on who we're representing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the founders, the founders, yeah, yeah, let's assume the founders. I mean, I, so when I'm, when I'm advising founders, um, I always, I always encourage them to think about maybe three to four really big issues um, as opposed to, so you kind of, we want founders to look like they are really well advised, they know what they're, they know the things to push back on. They're not pushing back on things that don't matter. Um, kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the few things I, I always think about board control, um, understanding that you're going to have a, uh, at least at the early stages of a company, you're going to have a lot. Um, that's a really key one. Um, obviously, but, you know, top line valuation, size of the option pool, that sort of thing yeah. is always key. Um, you know, but really, I think control rights uh, are really important to, to early stage companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. 100% correct, especially because what we have, to your question earlier about, you know, what have we observed, not just even over the last like couple of years, going back further, is is that there's a, the, the bid ask spread, if you will, or the range of potential outcomes is a lot wider yeah. in Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Singapore, um, as compared to the US. Um, there's a lot of variance. Um, what high caliber investors, what other investors who are less experienced, what they ask for, there's a wide range there. And so having it particularly on control, both at board and shareholder level, that's like a really key part that we see um, 
that you know I think is very important because we see a lot of founders and a lot of companies trade a lot away early on in the company. Um, I want to do a, a second question, which is which is very relevant, and would love your your, your input as well, guys. Um, so the second one is: Is it advisable to reach out to founders in the next few weeks, or is it better to wait till life is more or less back to normal? Um, so I think that's an amazing question. Um, I know that number of founders struggle with the fact that you know it's it's, it's times it's unprecedented times. I don't think a lot of us have seen uh, such an impact before. Um, the question then becomes. I'm still running my business and I still want to fundraise. So should I be cold calling investors? Um, you know, maybe they have other things on their mind. Should I be talking to corporate VCs uh, whilst the corporate might have all kinds of different issues? Um, should I be talking to this angel investor who might have been exposed in the public markets and is now, is now having a difficult time? Um, I would always say that you should definitely try to reach out to investors, but think about the message. Um, the message saying, hey, I'm fundraising, um, I'm closing my round next week, I need you to commit in the, in the next few days, might not be the right message at this point in time. But it's definitely good to you know, talk to investors and say, hey, um, you know, I had my fundraising plan scheduled for, for later this year, um, I have some concerns about where, where the market is, you know, would you mind spending at least 30, 30 minutes on a call and kind of run through um, how you guys see this? If it's people that you know in your network, um, ask them for like an open conversation and say, hey, you know, this, this is where the market is. Uh, this is where I think the next uh, 45, the, 40, the three quarters of this year is going to go. I would love to get your opinion. Um, I've known investors that are very curious to know how portfolio companies and how founders and how startups are doing at this point in time. Um, I'd say, you know, kind of use that momentum to at least keep on having conversations. So I would say, don't stop having conversations, be sensible to the message that, that you send out, uh, but we'd love to get your guys' opinion on, on this as well. I think, completely agree. I think to reinforce that point, this, this really goes to your earlier slide about you know, what are the top reasons for why startups often fail and it's cash flow management and it's planning, right? And this is a five standard deviation event. No one could predict this, but making sure that you are planning several quarters in advance for your fundraise so that it is part of a game plan so that, hey, Michael, I would like to talk to you about our fundraise, about our company. It's going according to plan and so that it doesn't telegraph hey, we desperately need capital, we're running out, or geez, if we lose this three-week window, come, where are we in March? Like, come April, we have to shut the doors, yeah. right? And so then it gives you that flexibility to be able to say, hey, look, I get it. Like, things are busy, everyone's dealing with, you know, businesses and, and health-related issues, but can we have this conversation maybe next week or in a couple of weeks? And I do think that, like, having that strategic game plan about your fundraise is so critical so that, yeah, these conversations can occur now, but it's part of a broader fundraise plan. Yeah, and also a lot of recognizing that a lot of VCs right now are triaging their current companies. A lot of, the, a lot right. of their companies in their portfolio are trying to figure out, you know, this is a, a shock to the system. Yeah. And so they're trying to figure out how to um, keep those companies going and helping. And um, so they're, they're busy now. I think it's also worth remembering, I mean, just you look back 
the great companies that were formed in 2008, Airbnb, Uber, you know, what is a, it's a pretty good yeah. list. So yeah. I think, you know, good VCs to have also long, you know, experience in the industry understand that the best companies are sometimes built and found in these um, times. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the concerns that VCs I think have right now is, Hey, you had a, you know, you were at a hundred million revenue run rate and you're mm -hmm. going to go to 75 yeah. and that's going to be a, a drastic issue for you. Early stage companies, I mean, their, their runway is so long yeah. that I think most early stage investors are betting on the founding team and the strength yeah. of the team. And by the time they even get to the point of showing success, how you measure it for early stage companies, we're hopefully going to be past a lot of this stuff. So I, I agree. Everything's just going to take longer you know, start, start building that relationship now and have a little bit of a longer view of it. I think hopefully things will be fine. Yeah. Can I, can I ask the, the, the fee question guys? Is that okay? The fee question? The fee question. Oh yeah. The valuation question. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so one of, one of the bigger concerns for founders that had fundraising plans later, later in the year is as is my valuation mm -hmm. when it can hit like across the board, um, you know, doesn't even matter what my metrics look like. Um, people are going to take advantage of this time to kind of scrutinize my evaluation. I uh, would love to get your guys' opinion on, on that as well. Yeah. I mean, part of it depends upon what stage of company you're at, right? If you're a growth, late stage company, revenue, you know, there's revenue model there. There's going to be a lot of, you know, checking the list and checking it twice type, you know, and there's going to be a lot more focus there. But for early stage companies, a lot of it goes to Matt's earlier point, which is, is that, hey, look, investors like yourself are looking at the team, looking at the idea. There's a lot of beta there. Um, and so that runway, the, uh, the dragon or whatever, the, yeah. you know, like that tail is quite long. And so to your question, yeah, most certainly there's going to be in this kind of an environment, everyone's going to say that, hey, look, are, like, let's scrub these projections a little bit. Like, are you sure that your SG&A or whatever nominal CapEx that you may have, like, is this the right time to be doing this? And does this reinforce and support the projections that you're making? But for early stage companies, I think that's less, uh, less of a concern versus say like a growth or late stage yeah. company where truly like, you know, people are saying, wait a minute, are these revenue projections really gonna hold up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't wanna sugarcoat it. I mean, I think there's a lot of re renegotiation going on even with current rounds. I mean, I think there, and we can talk about, you know, if that is acceptable behavior or not, yeah. people have different opinions, but the reality is, is that there's a lot of uh, haircuts on valuation right now. Um, for early stage companies, I, I completely agree with Barish, you know, whether, you know, it was a 15 million now and now it's gonna go to 13 and, and you know, the investors, you know, planning for a little more dilution in the future. I mean, these are not, if you get, in, if you get tied up with the right investor, these things long-term are not exactly. gonna make a material difference to the company. Yeah. Um, so harder to say in the early stage, I think later stage, it's a bit rocky right now. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah definitely. Well, thanks. So we'll, we'll get to more questions later, um, later in the afternoon. I just want to run through a few, um, a few more slides on, on actually the fundraising, the fundraising process and, um, kind of just a little bit of the next one from, um, a few of my good friends in, in, in VC. And the thing about fundraising is, um, I think when you do it for the first time, you tend to have very much the end result um, in mind, which is money in the bank. And that's amazing, but before you get one cent in the bank account, uh, there's a lot of work you, you, you need to be doing. Um, so there's the, the prep sales, execute and close. 
and each part is uh, is for me equally equally important you can't slack on the clothes because you can get hurt on terms um, you can get dragged on the diligence process which is going to take forever um, and it's going to cost you literally um, the momentum you have in your company i also believe you, you cannot slack on sales um, i cannot emphasize how important sales is and not only one-time sales i'm fundraising now but continuously keeping in mind i need to keep keep on talking to investors i need to say top of mind um, they need to know who i am they need to know what was happening in my firm um, preparation uh, similar so the one thing i i tend to ask when when young younger founders ask me like how do i how do i kick off my fundraise and and then the question usually starts with could you make some introductions for me um i'm always happy to make introductions uh, up until a certain point because i always ask for a bit of preparation so the first thing i would ask is could you send me a short intro email that i can forward and could you explain why this investor should be talking to you? The reason I'm asking for this is, again, investors get so many pitch decks, emails, phone calls, WhatsApp messages, TikTok, whatever. They, they get a lot, of, a lot of input. The issue is that you want to try and stand out and you want to make sure that there is an interest in some shape or form. So answering the question why you should be talking, why this investor should be talking to you and why you should be talking to this investor is an important one to ask yourself. So I'm always asking before you go at fundraising, why are you fundraising? What is the, I wouldn't say the urgency, but what is your plan for the next 12 to 18 months? And why are you doing this now? Is it a fundraise out of necessity? Uh, we need capital for the next four weeks and uh, otherwise this, this ship is going down. Um, are you building out a new market? Are you building out a new product? Um, are you hiring on, on a team side? Why are you doing this? Um, and th think about the fundraising instrument. So we'll, we'll talk a bit more about it later, but um, venture debt has been on the rise for, for the last few years. And there's a few firms in the region that are focusing on venture debt. Um, I've heard founders ask us, hey guys, should I be raising equity or should I be raising a debt round maybe? And should I be looking at other al alternatives? So please make sure that, that you prepare. Um, so I've also added uh, a data room and DDQ. Um, now I'm not, I'm not gonna say that if you are a um, idea pre-seed company that you should build an entire data room um, <laughs> yeah. uh, because I think that that's a bit overdone but it, it's always helpful to kind of think through what are the questions that these investors might ask just having it in, in the back of your mind will make you more prepared the worst thing that you can do is once an investor asks for um, you know a certain document or asks for a certain question it'll take you weeks or even months to answer uh, so just make sure that you are on the ball and can keep the momentum going. Um, and then on the sales side, um, I'm always saying, you know, people like, Michael, you like fundraising. I, I, I do like it, but I see myself as a bit of a car salesman. Um, always keeping sales, sales in mind. And the reason why I'm saying this is, if you have that in mind, you're selling when you're not selling. And I mean is that you reach out to investors, partners, corporates, even when you're not fundraising. The reason why this is important, um, it, it's kind of like, um, and maybe the audience is, is a bit too young for this, but there, there's this movie, um, uh, it's called Flying High, I think it's Airplane, uh, it's called Airplane in the US, but it's, it's Flying High in, in Europe. And there's one scene where a, a, a flying pilot um, walks through the airport and there's all kinds of people trying to sell him something. Um, and he gets so upset, he's, he's trying to hit people and, and you know, doing body slaps. 
Um, the story behind it is, is <laughs> if you're trying to do this immediate sales, like I need an answer tomorrow or I need money uh, next week, um, you, you, you'll you fend off a few people. And the best part you can do is talk to investors when you're not fundraising. Um, it's a way more relaxed environment. You're able to have a more open conversation and the pressure is off. And if the pressure is off, you'll, you'll tend to have just a better, better conversation. Uh, so keep sales in mind. Um, Execute is extremely important. If you're doing roadshows, um, doing investor follow-ups, we talked a bit about it earlier, you might need to do a fundraising pivot. Um, even in this day and age, um, your initial fundraising plan where you had that $50 million valuation in mind, it's gonna expire to 12 or 10. What happens then? Are you sticking to your original plan or are you able to be flexible and are you able to pivot if necessary? What if the lead investor changes? Uh, what, what are you gonna do with, at that point in time? Um, and closing, and we'll, we'll talk about closing a little bit more when, when we talk about term sheets. Closing is so extremely important. You cannot slack on the closing process. Make sure that you're prepped for, if there's a legal DD, make sure that you're prepped in terms of documentation. Talk to your law firm, uh, talk to your partners on what do, we need to, what do we need to prepare to close this deal? It's extremely important. Okay, so you might yeah, just tack on a yeah. few points. Um, so in each of these quadrants, uh, prep, I think is so important. I think taking observations of what I've seen really good founders do um, over the years, uh, both early all the way through like late stage founders. One is, is that on the prep side, it's having that short little blurb, um, almost that your elevator pitch distilled into a quick paragraph, which captures all of these key points, I think is so critical, especially because as you're saying, like, you're busy. Everyone's got everyone's got tons of stuff on their plate, and so if you're making investor, if you're making an investor intro, almost kind of uh, here's what, like making it easy yeah. to just lubricate the process of connect me with some good investors and almost idiot proof it. Like, hey, here's who I think I should be talking to. Here's this. Here's the why, yeah. and making that easy. Um, the second part on prep, I think, is so important. Is is that again relative to stage, like having your model ready, having your projections ready, having the key, okay, if you're an early stage company, maybe there's one critical contract or whatever it may be, you don't wanna lose momentum. It's like anything else in life. If you've, got, if you've got an investor talking to you, going a week, two weeks, three weeks, you just lose momentum on that. Um, let's stop there, otherwise I can just keep going through some of these <laughs> other ones. Like. <laughs> no worries. Um, I'll quickly dive into um, so one of the questions that, that we tend to get is if you look at the next slide is is you know, how do, how do I how do I meet investors um, and and how do I how do I kind of build a sales funnel um, as a as a founder um, I always love that you know when we do this uh, you know face to face or kind of within I was going to say with an audience um, the question I I tend to get is yeah do I need to go to those conferences and and you know say hey I'm I'm reaching out to investors or I see investors that have, that have a orange badge and have them on the shoulder. Say, "Hey, uh, here's my pitch deck, and um, I want 20, uh, 20 minutes of your time." Um, my initial idea is um, it is not the ideal way of fundraising, um, to, to put it politely. Um, I think that the best thing you can do is look for the best and the warmest introductions. So, who are your ambassadors? Um, I always look for who are your best salespeople and Initially, we would always say, you know, my mom, <laughs> that's kind of the best salesperson uh, there is. But yeah, tend to look for 
who who are the moms in your in your network? Um, who would tell that amazing story that they've worked with you? You should hundred percent talk to them. Or I know I've known him as a founder in his previous companies. Amazing execution. Spend a few minutes with him. Listen to his story. Getting those warm introductions is the best you can do. Now the big question is. Um, don't be lazy with warm introductions. Warm introductions means that you still have to do work. You still have to prep. You still have to make sure that you write, you make the right introduction emails. You still have to have to go through your network, see who's connected to who, uh, do some efforts, make some phone calls, send out some emails, just to make sure that the right, the right connections are, are, are made. Um, LinkedIn is a perfect tool for uh, finding out who's connected to who. Um, asking for these introductions is one, t one way to get um, a sales funnel. And, and no more no more investors. This is a process that you can hardly rush. Um, you mentioned Ferris that people are busy. You're busy as a founder, investors are busy, you guys are super busy. So everyone's busy. So you make sure that every single moment that you get with an investor is valuable. Um, hence, I'm, I'm always kind of less keen on cold reaching out to, uh, to random investors at, um, at conferences because it could be a total mismatch for, for, for your specific company. So for me, it's always, if you want to build a sales funnel, work on warm introductions as much as you can. Yeah. I mean, it goes to the whole point about venture capital being access capital. Yeah. And so that curation of who gets you plugged into the VC or into investors, I think is so important. Yeah, I mean, in this, in this world, it's very hard not to be able to get connected to someone. Yeah. And, you know, we are, I always tell junior lawyers this, you can't build a network like right when you need the network, you have yeah. to build it in yeah, advance exactly. and, and get to the people and have them know you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then just for the audience, so what we'll do is um, after um, after the session, we'll make sure to also share the presentation. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll share a short blog post, so you'll, you'll get this um, uh, this information uh, later on as well. Um, so I'm quickly want to chat about um, sort of short-term sales versus long-term sales, and and what does a fundraising strategy fundraising strategy look like? So you'll see on the next slide, you'll, you'll see kind of two, uh, two bigger blocks. So one is short term and then one is, one is, one is long term. And I hope you guys, hope you guys can see it. Um, so with short term basically means it's, you'll, you will have instances where you need to raise in a certain timeline. Um, you know, that definitely happens when in the life cycle of a business and then it becomes more transactional. What you can do is just be open and transparent about it. And like, hey guys, I'm raising this new round. Um, we're trying to close in the next two months because of X, Y, and Z reasons. You can be transparent about it. And then investors have a choice to say yes or no early mm -hmm. on. And if they're keen, they will move fast and they'll make it happen. Um, if they're not keen, you know early, and at least you'll stop um, spending time on that specific investor because it doesn't fit in your short-term, kind of in your short-term strategy. More important, you need to build a long-term strategy and continuously look at building relationship and being and being less less transactional. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are seeing the next slide, so we'll just wait pause a second and we'll go through the next. Here we go. Yeah, perfect. Um, so as as I mentioned, you know, focus on focus on that long term um, building that building that relationship. What is also important is we always talk about that next round, the next round of funding, um, and kind of want to pause a little bit there. Um, there's always 
the ideal situation of you get the money that you want, you get the valuation that you want, um, you get the ideal investor investor base, but there's always this next round of funding, right? How how do you um, how do you guys how do you guys advise founders that you're talking to in terms of okay, you got this done now, but you always have this next round? How do you how do you, how do you manage the process? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This um, we we actually go to most of our companies' board meetings. This question comes up all the time in board meetings. How do I assess what the next round of investors going to need. And the first thing, first thing I think is, is talk with your current investors about it because the current investors, most investors are stage uh, investors. So, you know, if Michael's in at your series A, he's used to companies going to, into series B. He knows what those investors are going to ask for. And I think the second thing is actually just ask the new investors. Like you seem interested in, in, in me as a company. What do I need to do to make you, what do I have to show you? Far in advance, you ask this. What do I have to show you um, for you to be interested? And I think good investors will tell you. You need to have, you know, these metrics. You need to have, you know, three, you know, pilots signed up or whatever the metric is. Yeah. And they will tell you that. And that could that might change over time, but I think they will be good about it. So that's what I, that's what we tell companies. Yeah. I, I think the 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 part about this is what among many things distinguishes great investors and funds is the fact that founders and their teams can look to them and say that, hey, can you help me with a number of things, but particularly on fundraising, yeah. who are the active players in our space for growth in late stage rounds, right? So that's step one. Yeah. Um, and then also being able to identify kind of, hey, look, like what does so-and-so, all right, so we're talking about, and these are the kind of key funds that we should be thinking about. What are they, like, what are their key targets? Like what, you know, what have you heard in other companies that you've backed? And then the other part, which you, had, you mentioned a couple slides before, which is another thing that I've, I've, we've seen so much su successful founders do is start that engagement early. Even if it's 18 months away, kind of having that casual conversation, hey, we will be looking into the market, maybe you know, X period of time from now, but we just want to catch you up on what we're doing, right? And smart investors, especially when you have the ability to kind of say, oh, we may not be able to talk to you next week, but let's talk two weeks from now. Be able to start de developing that narrative with them, I think, is so critical. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I want to go to the next slide where um, we kind of talk about, you know, we talked about it earlier, but how, how do you how do you actually fundraise in a um, in a crisis? And I'm just going to see if you can pull up the next uh, the next slide. Almost there, and there we go. Um, yeah, the first thing, and this is always what my wife says, Mike, you need to acknowledge the situation at hand. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's important for founders as well, right? So it's really good to say, you know, we are in a situation right now, things are different. Um, and you need to, what does it mean for my business? Um, what does it mean for my financial plan for, for the coming year? Um, do we need to take action? And, and when do we need to take action? Um, talk about burn rate, you know, taking haircuts. I've, I've heard this a thousand times over the last over the last few weeks. Um, communicating with clients, communicating with visual investors. I'm just keen to understand, you know, as you guys are also kind of in the middle of this, you know, um, COVID-19 where we are right now. Um, how do you try to sort of help your clients, uh, founders, kind of through these storms? Do, do, do you get a lot of questions on, hey, we are looking to fundraise, or we are concerned that negotiations are taking too long in this what is what is kind of your take on on kind of navigating through this uh through this these times yeah i mean i think um i think a couple of things i think it's really important what you said about communicating with your your current investors and your board i mean i think one thing that's always a little bit 
cringe-inducing is when you see the board come to the, the founder and say, hey, you might want to revise your plan to assume you're going to run out of money in six months. And the founder goes, oh, okay, I'll do that. And, and you'll, I think, and then sometimes you might see a little chatter behind the scenes. Like, wow, I really wish they had thought of that. So, you know, I think being, <laughs> sort of being like understanding that and doing that up front and, and to your point, hey, hey board, we, hopefully this will be, go really well, but like we have, a, we have a plan in place, we're proactively doing that. I think yeah. it's really, it's really important. So continue to compute, communicate with your current investors. They're gonna be really important. You know, they're the fundraising ninjas in the, in the room. That's what they're really good at. And so they're going to help you, you know, if they believe in you as a company. So I think that's, that's important. And then I think in terms of, um, you know, closing deals, we have many deals that are in process right now. And what I would say is um, there's, there's outliers on both sides, but what's really happening, I think for most, most rounds right now is people are kind of buying a little bit for time. They're maybe negotiating a little harder on terms. Yeah. I think some people might be just trying to, to see what happens. And so we're telling people, listen, if, if this is what you want to do, let's get this closed as soon as possible. Do not over-negotiate. Yeah. Don't focus on things that don't matter. Let's get the money in the bank. Mm -hmm. The sooner you know that these people are not interested, if they're not, the better you'll be. You'll be. So we're just telling people, close quickly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Another one that we're, that we're seeing, I mean, and some of this depends on kind of where you are in the process of a fundraise, right? Much to what we were talking about earlier about the game plan. But to some companies, yeah, like actually take a step back, which is, is that a lot of our founder clients ask us in addition to their board about like, hey, what are you thinking about? Because th these are both strategic and tactical questions. Yeah. And we've seen this a lot. And so for some of them that are in a fundraise, but it was more of a uh, opportunistic period, they're kind of saying, they're going out and saying, look, we're going to postpone this for a couple of weeks because we may not be able to get on our plane. And yeah. You're probably, you know, you as investors are dealing with your portfolio. We get it. For others, it's um, one interesting technique that we've been seeing a lot of, like, or have seen a lot of good founders do, is they're kind of saying, "Hey, look, like we're getting ready to give you a flash update. Mm. So let's let a few weeks of what's going through process, and then we'll have you, you know, some updated flash KPIs to be able to keep that conversation going. So here's what." we're seeing after three, four weeks yeah. in our business. And so they're, so what they're doing is they're buying themselves some time mm -hmm. and saying that, hey, look, as soon as whatever, three, four weeks goes by, we're ready to have a more focused chat yeah. about how our business has done over the last month or so. And actually to your point about sales, um, you were, I know you were talking about investor sales, but yeah. you know, the, selling through a fundraise and actually selling through any material event like an M&A or whatever, is so important not to take your foot off the gas because if the investor ever steps back and says, you know, I just want to see how March ended up and you took your foot off the gas, it can be really damaging. So I, I agree, like continue to, you know, it's hard, but you have to sell through the, through the, through the transaction and close it as soon as possible. Yeah. yeah. It actually goes, uh, sorry, not to over rotate yeah. on this, but like one other point, it goes to what you were saying earlier, which is that be selling to a wide, be casting a wide net because even particularly during this period of time, if that investor kind of says, hey, look, like I want to see how March turned out or let's wait through April, yeah. right? You need to be able to, you're not going to be able to pivot wholesale, but you want to be able to have a few kind of whatever that coals that are in the iron or if irons in the coal or whatever in the yeah. fire. And so to be able to pivot because momentum can be completely yes. lost in that type of a situation. So it goes to what you said earlier, which is kind of be talking, even though as founders, we get it, like 
it's really tough to have to stretch your bandwidth. I think that is really important to be having multiple conversations with. Uh, but don't preach your exclusivity. Of course, oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're talking pre-term sheet. Yeah, 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 yeah totally, yeah, yeah, totally. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, let, me, let me try and go through a few. Uh, let me try and go through a few questions. Um, oh, this is amazing. Um, oof, you guys are good. Okay, let me see if I can find. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll love I'd like to take this one. Um, so do you at Golden Gate Ventures uh, keep making new investments during the crisis? If yes, do you have to adjust your investment terms? If not, when do you plan to restart? So this is a question that, um, of course, not only Golden Gate Ventures is getting, but if I've, you know, from our peers here or in the US, we've, we've heard that they've been getting questions as well. Um, so the short, the short of it is, yes, we are still investing. Uh, we are still picking up new deals. Um, we definitely don't want to um, halt our new investments and say, well, we kind of wait and see what, what happens, what happens uh, towards the end of the year. Um, in all fairness, of course, you know, we're, we're also working with our portfolio. Uh, we also have no idea what's going to happen in the next two to three months. Uh, so in all fairness, we have to take that into account. But yes, we are definitely still actively looking at deals. We're still taking <laughs> uh, video calls. I, I mm -hmm. want to say meetings, but it's video calls. Um, so yeah, we, we're still actively, because the reason is we feel that if you are standing still and hopefully, you know, in the next four months, five months, six months, things will slowly get better. Um, it's difficult to kind of restart and go out the gate. Um, and we feel that if we keep on having conversations, keep on engaging with founders, uh, keep on reading uh, pitch decks, um, keep on responding, it will you know, as an investor as well, we'll kind of keep on having the momentum, um, even when things globally, uh, go, globally slow down. Have you seen, um, let me ask you a question. Sure. Have, you, have you seen any examples of truly bad behavior among investors in this crisis or too early? Is it too early? Like what, what's your sense of it? So I've, um, so we, we I, mean, I, I guess we're talking more to our, peers than, than we did before, just because we want to get everyone's input on what's happening. And, and we are all in this together, right? Founders, uh, LPs, and, and VCs. Um, I have heard in the last week and a half um, that there are deals where investors have said, you know, hold on to the turkey for a little bit because we're not wiring any money anytime soon, or we're mm -hmm. holding off on negotiating, or even I heard that some people said, our board said, we just need to kind of you know, hit the brakes right now and get back to you in two, three months. Um, so there's definitely um, that was happening. Um, luckily, there's also kind of enough VCs and investors that are still actively in, in, in the market. But I think it's, it's, been, um, it's been such a shock. So initially, I think what people thought was, okay, this is big, but it's going to not impact us this much. And now people are like, oh, man, we don't know what's going to happen in the next four to five months. So... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, we have we have definitely seen that. Yeah. Um, oh, this is a good one. And I would love for you guys to chime in on this one as well. So how do investors do valuation for an early stage startup? Um, yeah, this, this is the... The black box. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Ocean. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, one of those eight balls. <laughs> it's Just a bit of an art and then we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll mix it up a little bit. Uh, no, so we're, we're definitely not Merlin. We are, there, there is a bit of a, a bit of a science behind it. Um, so early stage, it, it's, it's a big definition, right? So seed is different, different than series A, it's different, different than series B. Um, what we 
tell founders and what we advise founders is really try to focus on the capital you need to run your business and what is the projected timeline that you have in mind. So if it's 12 months and you're raising, uh, you're raising a $4 million round, think of what is the dilution that we want to take as a firm. And with those two numbers, you basically know what your valuation is going to be. So the reason why we're saying this is you can, you can talk about metrics at a very early stage um, until you're old and gray. And you want to pretend that you are having a discussion around metrics for the next six months. You want to talk about the business. So you can tell your investors, I'm raising this 4 million because I want to do X, Y, and Z in the next 12 months. And we feel that a dilution of 25% is acceptable in this round. That will give you a business conversation as opposed to a conversation only about metrics and only, you know, it is 4X of your revenue multiple instead of 6X or instead of 3X. So we tend to advise, look at the capital you need to fund your business, look at your timeline, look at dilution and that will give you that will give you a number um but yeah would love to be uh, maybe challenged or hear, hear other opinions as well yeah I mean, I, so um i think i think there is a little bit of a market um yep. and if i could just give a plug we actually we have a site called truly go yep. and there's a site on there um we, we realize you know we've been collecting valuation data for 1500 venture deals a year for the last 10 years we we decided let's just put it all on tableau and put it out there so it's all available there it's, it's very us focused but it's a it's it's a good look at the data um i actually to me my sense is met business traditional valuation metrics play almost no role in early stage company they they signal um is the company on the right track you know they, they signal they give signals about the company but the, no early stage investor i think prices based on metrics yeah um they say, you know, do I think that's the right amount of capital? And for my model, when I look at you as a company and the amount of capital you need to raise and, and the number of times you're going to raise, am I going to have enough equity in the company mm -hmm. um, to have a meaningful bet the fund yeah. return? And that you can kind of quickly get to a pretty tight range of ownership levels and and have that negotiation around a smaller range. So yeah. I, that's always been my view. I'm not the one pricing the companies that that's, you know, I, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've, I mean, we find that the, like these KPIs and these metrics are more um, coincidental versus mm -hmm. causal, yeah. right? So like their secondary dipsticks about, okay, hey, this is reinforcing a core story. Um, but yeah, it, it's much more along the primary thesis of what you were saying. Yeah. Um, so we're getting um, quite a bit of questions. So I just want to run through. Oh, here we go. This is a good one. Um, so what advice would you give to founders who just started one, two months ago um, and were thinking of raising an angel um, or, or pre-seed round? Um, so in terms of starting one, two months ago, uh, definitely exciting times to, um, uh, to be starting a company, uh, that's for sure. So, so, so kudos for, um, uh, for, for, for being there. Um, in terms of kind of finding the right angels, this is actually to my, to my earlier point try to use and leverage your network. Um, I think when you are looking to raise you know, an angel or a pre-seed round, get as many warm introductions as you possibly can yeah. uh, and build that angel, angel network. I think reaching out cold to angels in, in, in this time will be, will be a very difficult and a very hard sell. Um, so leverage your network as, as much as you possibly can. 
Yeah, you know, uh, it's hard to it's hard to know how everyone's going to react to every crisis. But yeah, you know, I've lived through um, you know the dot com crash in two thousand eight, and the one thing you, what you see is the angels, other than the super wealthy people, the angels react the fastest to these events. They kind of say, "Hey, I was sort of investing for fun, and this is my this is real money to me. I'm not an institutional investor. I'm going to pull it back." And the second thing I'd say is angels tend to fall in love with the founder. They're not they're not making they're they're sort of they're investing because they really like the, the person and yeah. the idea, and that takes that's an investment of time. So um, I think I think you will see. I, my bet is we will see the angel market tighten up a little bit if we, um, you know, if this is prolonged. Yeah. 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 Um, so one uh, this is an interesting question. Um, oh, wow, people are really posting. Yeah, the question's gone again. Let me see if I can find. Any pitches in there for Golden Gate? Yeah, I was about to say. Any decks? Any decks? Oh, this is interesting. So, at what stage will external fundraising firms have added value, and how should they be appointed? This is interesting. Um, so, should you be working with a um, external fundraising, uh, like a merchant bank or like a boutique firm, or like one of the big firms? Um, and and when should we should, should we should we should you be appointing those angels funds? What 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 have you guys seen? So in the early stage, that's very typical. Um, I, I actually always tell people, like Mike, how would you feel if six percent of your capital went out the door? Yeah, I don't think, at least in the U.S., any any company showing up with an advisor is not, for the most part, really taken seriously by investors. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm fair. She. Yeah. No, that's but, exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's actually a good point. So um, we do know that founders sometimes struggle with this question because, you know, there's, there's someone who is amazing at fundraising. He, he gets a fee, but he's, he's good at fundraising. So he's definitely able to kind of help me with my fundraising process, kind of outsources the hard work yeah. uh, for this guy. Um, what, I, what I can tell you how investors look at it. Um, so the one thing is fundraising is a skill that you want to see founders actually have. Mm -hmm. So if you are at an early stage and you're already working with an advisor who you've outsourced the fundraising to, um, there's, a, there's a few questions that we have immediately um, in, in our minds. Um, one, why aren't you pitching your own company? Uh, because it's your early baby, uh, your heart and soul, isn't this? We want to see it from day one. Mm. Uh, so our first conversation should be the conversation we have with the founders as opposed to with an external advisor. So at an early stage, you really need to be very sensitive in terms of you're presenting your company as opposed to someone else is presenting your company. Um, for late states, it's totally different. Yeah, uh, but for early states, it is crucial that you as a founder, to our early point, we're making bets on the team, right? Correct. And we're making bets on your being able to execute. Um, so at an early stage, it is crucial that you are 100% in this fundraising process as opposed to outsourcing, outsourcing. Yeah. and, and um, just to kind of take a little bit of the opposite view or present a different opinion, because I'm totally with you. Uh, there are situations where you just can't get access to certain pools of capital yeah. without finders. Um, you know, I think approaching Golden Gate with with a founder is is, is a zero. Um, but there are, there are pools of capital around the world who are trying to access great early stage companies, and you might have to pay a fee. So it's, it's not like a never. It's just it's not. An ideal situation. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. Very, very hard. Correct. Um, in the meantime, I'm, I'm trying to read through a um, number of questions. So, but what we'll do is, um, I want to 
I want to actually talk about term sheets if you, if you guys are, you guys are sure. okay. Um, so I want to make sure that we spend we spend time on term sheets as well. Um, so we have a. I'm going to skip a few slides because we're getting so many questions. I, I want to make sure that we touch upon um, the term sheets as well. So there's a slide called uh, term sheets. Kind of scroll up a little bit. Oh, I love technology. So good. And again, we'll make sure to um, um, one more. And we'll make sure to uh, send you guys this, this as well. So one of the bigger questions we uh, uh, I get from friends that are raising around or, or founders that we you know meet occasionally um, is, man, I'm I'm reading through this term sheet and I'm not sure which terms are actually good for me. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of highlighted a few things that uh, we get questions around. So I'm just going to pick randomly. I'm going to just pick your brain and and you know see how you guys feel about this. Um, so can I talk about safe notes first? Yeah. Okay, yes. great. Yeah. So safe notes, um, good or bad? <laughs> they serve a purpose. Okay. You got two lawyers around you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think safes, um, first of all, it's important to remember that safes and convertible notes are really two sides of the same instrument. They, they, there's some technicalities why they're different. Yeah. Um, you know, safe, safes are, is a YC branded form of document, um, but it's not it's not unique to YC. This this concept or Y Combinator, this concept of convertibles has existed for for a while now. And I think when I say it serves a purpose, is these conver convertible instruments are great for getting capital in fast, keeping legal fees low, um, moving people along quickly, not having heavy investment terms. Um, and, and maybe some other characteristics. I think there's a lot of negatives when they get overused. People raise too much money on them and take massive dilution and don't understand that. Um, so it is a tool. Sometimes it works. Sometimes, sometimes it's a great idea. Sometimes it's not such a great idea. And you have to really be advised on, on what it is. So what, what, would you, what would you literally advise a founder that is contemplating a safe note? And, and he or she is like, I'm still on the fence. Uh, what, what, what would you tell them? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, first and foremost, it goes to what you were saying earlier, which is, is that look like, you know, what's the fundraising thesis? And what's the timeline? What's the, um, what's the cap? Like, wh when do you need to be deploying this capital? Of course, it's obvious, like, as soon as possible, but, you know, relative to this game plan that we're talking about, because when founders approach us and say that oftentimes it, what occurs in the you know, kind of it, companies that we, we're, we're informally advising, they're talking to angels. They'll kind of say, hey, look, I've got this offer for a safe. I've got a couple of people that are talking about it. Should I do a safe or should I maybe go for a price round? Right? Yeah. Do a proper equity round. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, and it becomes situational specific. Yeah. Do you need capital very quickly? In which case it goes exactly what Matt is saying, which is, is that it's an expedient, it's, it's a quick way to raise capital, but you don't want to get addicted to it yeah. because you can it can result in high over dilution. Um, if oftentimes what occurs is that you're sitting there and you're like, wait a minute, you've got a lot of offers for safes here. Maybe try to spend another few weeks or maybe another month or two to see if you can try to push to collect enough momentum and just get a price round done. Mm. Um, because the dilution, when you look at it, it's just going to be way too much, yeah. um, you know, particularly with the, the discounts and everything that kick in. Yeah. So it's a little bit, I guess, a long answer. The short way of saying it is it's a little bit context dependent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah and I think, um, I think we're maybe 
this is not so true right now, but historically, when convertibles started coming out, you saw them a lot with, you know, there was no VC wanting to price, I mean, it wasn't, yeah, exactly. you know, Golden Gate wanting to put in, you know, 1.5 million and then another 500,000 for angels. It, it's, you have a, a wide group of people who are not coordinated. They're not going to have a board member. You don't want people having blocking rights. I mean, it was a, it was a sort of a way to tell people you can get early access to the company. And when I get an institutional investor that actually works out the terms, you'll just follow along with them. And where, where things kind of changed a little bit was people started raising like $4 million rounds mm -hmm. in saves yeah, exactly. and not understanding <laughs> the economics of how that played out when it actually converted yeah. and not understanding they can't, con they can't control the situation of how it converts yeah. in advance. And so that's where people have gotten into trouble. So it, you, this is where it's really important to be mobilized by your investors and your professional investors. Totally. So the audience is, is in luck with your two amazing advisors sitting here. Um, so when we talk about conversion, uh, which is which can become very tricky. Um, what are what are could you ask for like a top five, maybe top three of items that you should look out for when you are doing a convertible note? So what are what are the biggest pitfalls when it comes to convertible notes? The biggest issue with convertible notes is they have a range of outcomes um, that can be really material that you don't know how they're going to happen today. I mean, equity is very simple. You give the investor. 20% of the company, maybe some control rights, they're along for the ride, everyone's aligned. The problem with notes and convertibles is they say, well, if you don't raise money within a year, this happens. Well, how do I know if I'm gonna raise money within a year? Or if I sell, this happens. Or you know, if I, if I get to maturity, then it converts to common stock. And so there's all these things that happen that you have to think through. Um, and when, when we're advising companies, you know, our advice is always kind of contextual to what's happening in the market yeah. kind of now and what's historically happened, but we don't actually know what's going to happen in the future. So there's just a lot of unknowns with convertible. So I think, you know, I think um, you asked about top things. Um, there's obviously always the top thing is there's a cap. What's that cap mean? Yeah. It's important to understand that even though a cap is not a valuation, people start thinking of <laughs> exactly you know, it's funny thing that happens you have like, you know a 10 million dollar cap and you raise below it and the investor gets a discount and they should be super happy and they go why are you doing a down round you're like, not a down round yeah. um so valuation and cap or cap is important um you know the length of maturity on when, when do you have to pay back the money if you don't raise yeah. what happens in a sale those kind of things are really key points yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. um so the other big question we're we're, we're typically getting is, is around liquidation preferences um, and then for some founders they're just new to this and they just don't understand what it means and, and how it will affect them and and the other part is you know I, i'm i'm seeing participating non-participating 1x 2x 1.5 what's what standard uh, what do i do here could you help us with the founders and and understand why is liquidation preference important and what should they be looking out for so i'll give a short answer um, God forbid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Anyone that knows me, it's very hard. Standard in South, or now it's not even like a long answer. It's standard for market is 1x non-participating like PREF. And, and um, what does it mean? I was going to say, so okay, I was, yeah. was going to do the short answer, and then I was going to let Matt do the long yeah. answer. Which one do you, you want to do, do the, well, the I mean, like, more detailed? You know, like, I'm worried I might go on. Liquidation <laughs> preference in its most simple form is downside protection for the investor. The investor says, um, if you sell the company, if my stake in your company is worth less than I put in, I get at least my money back. And if I, if it's, 
worth more, then I don't get that, and we just I get the percentage I own. That is, at least in the U.S., that's ninety plus percent of deals. Um, it's it's beyond standard. Um, you know what I think what happened is people started saying those different flavors of that. So that that's what Ferris was saying. There's sort of one X non-participating preferred. Um, then people start adding, okay, there's a there's a participation feature. What does that mean? I get the investor gets their money back, plus they get a percentage of based on their ownership of the proceeds above their investor amount. And this starts juicing investor returns. And and to be honest, you start seeing these things in bad markets where there's a divergence in valuation expectations. The investor's great that you have want this valuation, but I need to make sure I'm you know, my returns are there. Um, you might see a multiple liquidation. Like I get two X my money before you get anything. So these are all, these are all forms of downside protection, but the market, at least as it existed before three weeks ago was pretty clear. Yeah, yeah correct. <laughs> one X yeah, correct. Yeah. Okay. Good it's also an informal gut check in terms of, to some extent, I mean, again, right, we're in, we're in unusual times or uncharted yeah. waters, but it's usually a good gut check in terms of the caliber of the investor that you're talking to. Yeah. Um, and again, we're, the conversation we're having, let's assume that it's early stage founders, right? Participating liquidation preference, right? It usually tends to telegraph that, hey, look, this is an investor that isn't necessarily fully aligned, isn't backing the idea of like, hey, I'm all in on this founder, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they're oftentimes kind of, again, it's coincidental versus causal, but these tend to be kind of secondary signs of, yeah. okay, like this is what is a little bit more in store to come. It can actually make another comment on that. Um, this, it, this is so important. Um, Farish made this comment earlier about laying the train tracks. Yeah. Really good invest, really good early stage investors understand that some of the things they ask for yeah. um, are gonna, they're gonna, it's gonna be on them in later rounds. So for example, it might not be a huge deal if Mike wants, you know, liquid, you know, a participating preferred because yeah. he's put in a relatively small amount of money. But when you do the next round, the next round, all those preferences stack up on top of Golden Gate and really good investors understand that you really make your money from home runs. You don't make it exactly. by protecting your downside. And this is what Ferris is saying, but you know, signaling the right investor alignment. You want someone who's betting on the home run, who's not betting on the downside. Now, downside protection is important for portfolio management, but you know, adding all these goodies, um, great investors have kind of realized that's not where it's at. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, and then thanks for explaining because we know we got a lot of questions around um, mm. um, around a specific subject. Um, I'm also going through the questions because we are we're still getting getting quite a few. Um, As you're pulling that up, by the way, there's a really good article. Sorry, this is going to sound like a double plug yeah. on Cooley Go about Liquecraft. Okay. Um, yeah. So we have uh, hundreds of articles about this stuff on there. We'll, maybe we'll send them around with your. Dad. Yeah, we'll make sure. Um, so there's kind of a few things. We, we will send some links in terms of uh, resources uh, that you can use, even specifically around uh, you know how to manage fundraising uh, during COVID. Uh, but also the Cooley Go ones. So we'll definitely share this after um, after, after the session. Um, interesting question on uh, back on valuation, guys, is given pressures on valuation, would a convertible loan make sense to bridge a business financial, financially, to bridge a business's financial needs um, to finance their milestones pre-Series B? So back to convertibles. Would Is the time now a good time to think about convertibles to kind of bridge you until your next round? Or should you be forcing this price round um, in these times? I think it depends on who you're talking about. Um, you know, again, we go back to the quality of your investor. If, you, if you're talking about a Series B, that means you raise a Series A, 
I, you probably have an institutional investor in there. What we're seeing, the conversations we're having with companies is, um, that I, I hear investors really having with companies is, you know, we think you're, we think the company is, you know, we, is very promising. This is a black swan event. We're, we're going to support you. I, I think really great investors don't want to signal valuation to new investors. Mm -hmm. They also don't want to price their own companies. Like they're, they're in a, in a almost a conflicted situation. So for convertibles can be a really good mean means for the comp for the investor to get put more money in, maybe give them a discount so that, so when the round raises, they get some economics from that. Yeah. Um, it's a great way to raise money from existing investors. And actually that's where convertible started yeah. back, you know, 15 years ago. That's what people were using convertibles for is to kind of raise money at a time when you really couldn't properly value the company. And I think you could argue right now, it's hard to value companies. Exactly. We don't really know what's happening. So I'd, I'd go back to your investors and say, um, would you be open to a bridge? You know, um, we'll work with you, but we need the companies we need support. Yeah. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing that in the market. Um, you know, early signs of, especially because this thing, this is still playing itself out. Yeah. We're most certainly seeing that. So that most certainly reinforces what Matt is saying. Um, so I've got a very interesting question from a single founder. Um, so for a single founder with an angel investor, what might be a few terms to watch out for when the venture is a high growth from a high growth scalable nature? So are, are there terms that are different for single founders than for founding teams? Is there anything specific they should be looking out for? I don't think, I don't think so. Um, you know, this is, I mean, sometimes, as I said early on, sometimes you talk about board, board issues, um, single founders, um, Sometimes it's hard to maintain board control because you're only one person and you don't want to start putting random people on the board. Um, again, angels aren't usually taking board seats. So this is maybe, you know, not a huge issue for early stage companies, but I don't, I don't think there's, I mean, I don't think there's different terms for single founders. Yeah. The board part, totally agree. The board part, it's, I guess, there's no separate terms, but it's important for us. Sorry, the reason I was laughing was I, I wasn't sure. I was like single founder or a single. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for a founder that is by themselves or a single founder, um, is that not thinking about like their board representation in in the singular, right? So that and so that board control doesn't get traded away too soon. The idea that, okay, there's three of us, we're all co-founders, so then each of us gets a board seat. But that doesn't mean that, oh, there's only one of me, so then that's only one board seat or, or proportionate representation. Yeah. But otherwise, like, things like like craft, shareholder rights, certainly valuation, um, those generally tend not to break, make or break one way or the other, depending mm -hmm. on whether it's a, you know, a single founder or yeah. multiple founders. Um, we're getting some questions around, uh, I'm just going to, jump real quick because I'm seeing some questions that are around what are the most interesting verticals that VCs are looking at and does current COVID kind of change the, um, the investment landscape. Um, so from a, from a VC kind of Golden Gate Ventures perspective, um, you know, we're definitely on the lookout to see what is happening in, in certain verticals. So education is a very interesting, interesting part right now where, um, you know, people are schooling their kids from home. Uh, some mandatory, some uh, voluntary, but even if you look at what are the education platforms that are that are catering these, um, uh, you know, these school kids and and these parents, you know, a year ago would have been interesting. Now it's right in your face, and and you're looking for for good opportunities within 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 that space. 
um, I think digital health remains extremely interesting. And I think COVID accelerated that interest for, for a lot of VCs. So that, that's something we're seeing as well. But just in general, just wanted to say that um, venture capital is typically a very long-term and then kind of patient game. Um, and although you know all this is happening and we are looking at trends and are trying to identify, is there something different now than a year ago that we should be looking out for? Um, we do have to make sure that those investments make sense next year and the year after and the year after. Uh, because typically, you know, we invest over a 10 year horizon. And although this is extremely impactful at this moment, um, we have to look at a 10 year horizon always. So it does mean that we are still looking at other verticals, um, you know, on the, the commerce space, logistics, um, whether it's first mile, last mile, um, um, agriculture, um, AI. We are still looking, looking at all these different different industries, although we are very aware of what's happening right now and are trying to see if there are trends we should be following. But in general, I would say that most VCs will kind of stick to their investment strategy, um, even with big events like this, like this happening. Yeah, the other thing I, I mentioned um, is a lot of activity around here around life sciences yes. yeah. and digital health, and there's some yeah. crossover. But you know, these these deep tech industries or these you know heavy science industries, um, the Singapore is investing a lot of resources. We actually have a really big fund formation practice, and we've been talking to a lot. There's a lot of funds that are bubbling around around life sciences, and so I think if you're if any of the founders on this call. Um, are are in that industry. This is probably a, this. I think we're witnessing, hopefully, the early stages of a really strong life sciences uh, culture here. Yeah. Um, and the thing that the life science investors always say is, you know, we have great scientists, we have money. What we don't have a lot of is are those people who know how to build companies that managerial layer. And so, if if you're a person like that and you can kind of team up with a great scientist, I think those companies will get funded. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, it seems I'm getting some questions from colleagues as well, so that's always that's always good. Uh, so good to see peers uh, asking for asking other funds. Other funds. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So so good. Thank you, other managers, for uh, for ju jumping on the call as well. Um, so two questions, and I got an interesting question for uh, for the, for the Cooley the Cooley team as well. Um, so the first one is um, the first one is. Uh, are there any tips to fundraise for a first-time fund manager without prior GP experience? Um, yeah, so for first-time VCs, you know, uh, any tips on, on the fundraising side? It's funny enough, it's, it's very similar. It's extremely similar to um, fundraising as a startup. Um, so in, in terms of, you know, launching your first VC fund, uh, and especially if there's no track record, you're, you're a first-time manager, um, you have to work on building those long-term relationships specifically because you you'll know that the lps that you'll be working with um they will be with you for for the next 10 years and you'll, you'll go to highs and you'll go to lows uh, you'll go to covid 19 uh, eras so the most important part that i can say is you have to make a bet on your um, experience in your previous work life so just to give an example, I know amazing GPs and amazing managers that have funds specifically focused on prop tech or funds specifically focused on fintech or funds specifically focused on healthcare because they have an amazing background uh, within that industry and are able to make, uh, to, to make a difference. I think if you are a um, generalist fund, uh, like a lot of VC funds you know, in this region, but also in the US and Europe and in, in other regions, um, 
it will be a bit more difficult to make that distinction because there are quite a bit of generalist funds um, in, in place. And how are you going to make sort of that the differenti differentiation between, between other funds? Um, one thing you could think of is, are you better at deal sourcing? So are you able to create a proprietary pipeline of deals that other funds don't have? Do you have something special as a manager? Uh, do you have a previous experience that other, other fund managers don't have? So it's not easy to raise a new fund uh, without, without a previous track record, but really do a, a deep drill down on what are the uniquenesses of us as managers individually, um, our background, and are we able to build a very strong proprietary pipeline of, of you know, potentially interesting deals? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. There's, um, so you, we have one of the world's largest VC fund formation practice. So when GPs go and raise capital from LPs, and so um, you know, partners all around the world on this. And um, Matt and I focus on founder or representing VCs when they deploy capital. But the one thing that we you know, hear all the time from our partners who focus on this, among many things, two things. One, which is, is that it's, I would say is double the timeline. Yeah. Like first time fund managers, I'm sure you, you went through this route, is, is that right? there's the timeline that you sketch out and then in reality, how long it takes to actually get that first anchor LP yeah. in. Because tell me if you disagree, but in the LP world, the bias against or the bias towards repeat um, or you know, kind of second or third or multiple mm -hmm. funds is so strong it's uh, very much a herd mindset a little bit and so it takes long way of saying it takes gps a super long time to raise so it's almost kind of buffer or yeah. build a business plan or a fundraise plan that anticipates almost double the timeline and i think a second thing that again anecdotally from our partners who focus on this is is that it's challenging as a gp as a single gp um, to the single founder yeah. Um, it's hard, it, it's hard for LPs to kind of get their minds around, especially if you're doing, Hey, I'm going to do all of Southeast Asia prop tech yeah. by myself. Yeah. You know, that that's, that's hard for LPs, I think, to get their minds around. Yeah. So anyways, those are two yeah, observations. I, mean, I, think, I think, I mean, again, this is, this is a bit anecdotal. Um, my sense is that these first time funds end up having a lot of family office money to have, a, you know, maybe have a, a, an anchor tenant who. I mean, they're really buying your network. Yeah. They're buying access that they don't have. Yeah. The idea that you're going to get an allocation from a JP Morgan or something is very low, if not zero, I think, yeah. as a first-time fund manager. So I think really focusing on those, you know, those those pools of capital that are more likely to, you know, want to buy into your network is probably the best bet. Yeah, yeah, I like the the fact that you mentioned double the time. Is that was that uh, yeah. your experience? Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it is. It is honestly, um, if if you set out to launch your first fund and hopefully be up and running in, in the next nine months, make it 18 months. Um, and that's just, just reality. Um, yeah. so I think it's so important that you mentioned that because I think a lot of founders don't understand that a lot of funds are, they kind of went through the same thing. Exactly. I mean, they're not, it's not like there's some easy, you know, pool of capital they're just tapping into. I mean, it's a really hard to build a, a venture business. Also. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah the, the, uh, anecdotally, if you, if you think about uh, the, the amount of travel um, investors, VCs need do um, to raise a fund hmm. uh, you're on a, you're on the app right almost every single week so wow. that's, uh, that's that's part of it i got a very funny question just kind of uh, to, to sort of break all this serious conversation <laughs> about, uh, limited partner fundraising 
Here we go. They thought they felt it was serious. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe they did. Um, so how, how much does Cody charge? This is an actual question. Um, how, how this is this a light question? It's, it's, yeah, and it's liked by a lot of people, so okay. here we go. Um, how much does Cody charge to assist with early stage C notes and price rounds? So, this is your plug, guys. <laughs> we were just talking about well, uh, first thing I'll say is yeah. um, we actually realized early on that charging a lot of money for C stage companies is not really how we're going to retire, yeah. right? So, we're what well, we we actually again back to Cooley Go, but this is kind of our portal. We actually put. Um, safe notes, convertible notes, seed equity. We put all those documents, we, we built document generators internally, which was a huge investment at the time. You can generate all the documents for at least US financing. We'll, we'll probably eventually do it for other parts of the world. Um, we give it away. Yeah. Um, so we're not trying to make money off early stage financings. Um, I think, you know, when we think about a relationship with a company, it's kind of like, how do we build a, a long relationship so that when they're doing their CDE round, selling, going public, that we're like a really trusted advisor. So for early stage fund fundraisings, we tell people, here's how to do it. Here's how you can save legal fees. Here's the things that you're negotiating for that might cost you a lot of money. So we're trying to steer people away from that. So with all those caveats, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the range really depends on the level of negotiation. and. Um, and what you see in Southeast Asia is much more negotiation than you have in, in the U.S. The yeah. U.S. has become quite standard. Yeah. Um, and out here, you have much longer processes with longer negotiations and heavier terms. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really fact and circumstance specific. Um, you could do a note financing for $3,000. Yeah. Um, you could do a note financing for $50,000. Um, and is a similar wide range for equity rounds. It's kind of hard to answer. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're worth it. That's what I'll, that's how I leave it. But. Okay. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yep. the, the one part I want to touch on that Matt was saying, it's just that one, it's a lot, I mean, look, like we're not trying to make rent off of uh, converts and, and individual fundraisers. We're thankfully a large enough fund, a firm to, to that that's not how we look yeah. at any founder relationship. But, um, but so much of it is, is that, look, it's how much are your investors going to negotiate? I mean, we've got, we've seen converts where, honest to God, it's like 25 pages and you're sitting there and you're like, okay, wow. Like they're really rotating deep on these rights here. Um, um, it can also be done through our, you know, document generators, very simple and very free uh, or very cost effectively. Um, so I do, I, I think so much of this dri is driven by kind of, look, it's a caliber of the investor that you've got coming in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, what's their negotiating disposition? Um, so yeah, just, I think that's, that's so much a, a key driver of this. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's an interesting question around uh, debt funding. So in case of debt funding, an investor is asking for a personal liability clause. What are the options available in case of assuring an investor on the security of the loan and debt? Personal recourse to the founder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah. yeah. For venture debt. Mm -hmm. right. So venture? I'm assuming oh. this is this is venture debt. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, that's a rough term. Yeah. yeah because correct. it's not. I mean, if you think about, if you just sort of take a step back, the founder is not getting something personal. They're not getting no personal benefit. Yeah. Um, you know, the concept of investment is a shared enterprise where we we 
you know, we've analyzed the company, we've we've looked at the risk, we've priced it accordingly. Um, we're going to go share the risk together and try to make it successful. And when you make the found, when you make an individual owner of the company sort of put their financial future on the line and backstop it, that's a tough term. Um, I would just encourage people to, to really push back hard. It yep. may be that we just, you just kind of have to do it to save your company. And I think make sure you really know what you're getting into. Um, there's a concept of um, recourse. Yep. Um, and recourse is a concept that sort of means what can you go after? Yep. Um, can you go after only my shares or mm -hmm. can you go after my house? That's a very different thing for yes. a lot of people. Yep. So I think understanding what they can, where they can go after you is, mm -hmm. a, is important. Yeah. I've, I've, I've met and, and, and talked to worked with investors that said, if there's any personal liability in any contracts, I won't invest yeah. because they don't want to put the founder in a position yeah, where he has to be scared, he's losing his house. Um, yeah, has heavy uh, personal li liabilities in, in any contracts. Um, they want the founders to focus on the business mm -hmm. and not so much being scared of uh, what happens if, if it goes. Right. If it goes totally. Founders wouldn't do this if they weren't prepared to bet the ranch in terms of, but within the confines of the corporate enterprise or a, you know, a, a company, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, that's number one, right? So an investor, a debt investor that isn't getting that, there's already a misalignment there too, is, is that I agree, it almost by putting that level of pressure onto a founder, again, it almost creates perverse incentives. I'd be almost a little bit worried about like, look, like, you know, numbers aren't turning out, it, this person's house is on the line, like, are there really incentives, you know, are they, are they properly incentivized to return and return principal and coupon yeah. or to Absolutely. do other stuff? So yeah, no, no, I, I yeah, that's, uh, that's something that I would try to push back on very yeah. hard. So I think we're, we're very much aligned on, on push back with that term uh, as, as, as much as you, as much as you can. Um, you set up a ton of questions um, to go through, but I quickly want to run through um, is there anything on term sheets where you guys think we should address that with this crowd right now? Or have you kind of gone through the most important things you think? You know, we've hit on like key points. We've talked about like, we talked about like key, you know, board control. Um, oh, actually, I would, this is going to sound, this is going to sound self-serving, but again, it's not just us. Make sure that you don't sign a term sheet without having a lawyer or an advisor, a skilled advisor, look at it. Um, yes, it is not a binding contract. Term sheets always say, you know, somebody will put that like, this is non-binding. But the truth is, is that it throws you into exclusivity and it's very hard because once you've kind of gotten pregnant in that process, you're not gonna course correct after a 30, 60, 90 day exclusivity window. I'm just gonna say, okay, then let me now go to the next investor. And so don't, strong cannot emphasize this enough not to sign a term sheet without having someone just look at it uh, whether it's an existing investor that's skilled in doing this yeah. or you know a lawyer yeah so we we, we touched upon um sort of the, the term sheet process what to look at uh, maybe sort of as a final question on specifically term sheet then we'll talk about some other stuff on fundraising um when should you engage with your with your with your legal counsel or, or with your advisor in the process of fundraising? 
when when do you guys typically get involved because a few people are asking i'm not sure when i need to you know give a phone call and ask for a quotation or or get a lawyer involved so when does that happen yeah i mean for 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 great relationships between companies and lawyers um assuming you have assuming it's not an existing yeah. you don't have an existing lawyer on but you're looking for someone um it's it's at least a couple weeks i think before you're expecting term sheets yeah. there's a couple things that will come up one is and some of these are on your slide i mean being prepared mm-hmm. having the data room ready so if you sign a term sheet you're not waiting two weeks for that process that's a real killer um so getting things ready um and to your point about having someone look at this um you know most founders they maybe negotiate two or three venture rounds in their career yeah. Venture investors maybe do 50, 100, whatever the number is. Um, Farish probably does 50 in a year. So, you know, your advisor is sort of your equalizer in the process that yeah. really can help you understand not only what's written on the page, but what's not on the page and what's going to come up later and all these things that come up. So I think getting someone early so that they can at least take an early look at the term sheet can help you through the process, can guide you, I think is, is important. Um, you don't want to be you do not want to hire a lawyer after you get a term sheet because again, you're just building in a time frame to a delay period that you could have avoided. Um, And again, engaging with a law firm before you get a term sheet, there's not much work going on. So it's not like you're incurring money. It's really just, you're just getting ready for for the thing to kick off. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say in your, in your four quadrants, it's the upper left quadrant. It's the prep phase. It allows you to, there are a number of things. One, it allows you as a founder to develop a rapport with your with your lawyers. I mean, as horrible as this may sound, I mean, or as enticing as this may sound, or horrible is, is that you spend a ton of time, especially in the early in the early stage rounds, talking with your lawyers because they are your equalizer and your advisor. So you want to develop that organic relationship. Number two is is that it's also a it's a good way to test out. Hey, is this a firm that really has the DNA of understanding? Is this a lawyer of like working with early stage founders like Matt and I have like we spend a lot of time with founders like, hey, what does your business do? Like, what, you know, what are you thinking about? And also educating, free education about these are key terms. You know, these are key terms to be live to because negotiations start well before that term sheet shows up, right? Smart investors are already kind of sprinkling little planting seeds. And so as a founder, you want to have that equalizer. And so doing that in the prep phase, um, you know, we do countless meetings with founders where we're not charging them. There's no meter running in the room. Um, and, you know, so it's just developing that organic relationship with your advisor. Okay. So, it makes, so actually similar to keeping up relationship with partners, investors, 100%. similar, you keep a relationship with your kind of yeah, firm early on as well. Yeah. And I yeah. think, you know, um, it, it doesn't, it's also not great for us when we engage at the wrong time with a company. Yeah. So we routinely tell people like, Hey, come back to us in six months or, actually you need to talk to us now or we're the wrong firm for you, but you can come back to us later. Like we, we have, we also have to be aligned with people yeah. or else it doesn't work. And so we're doing that all the time as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's funny enough that I, I, I think we have a few VCs watching and chiming in as well. That's, oh. that's amazing. Again, thanks guys for, uh, <laughs> for sending in questions. I'm not going to answer all of them. Some of them you actually know yourselves as well. So, um, Market checks. I'll skip a few questions that are specifically on on LP relationships. Um, we we can talk about it offline. Um, but I wanted want to touch upon a few things 
this one is interesting. So um, in general, the, the funds in Asia have um, grown significantly, significantly over the years. So VCs that have that were early stage seed VCs, you know, six, seven years ago are now, you know, Series A, Series B and some even later stage um, investors. Um, how does this actually affect the decisions within the portfolio? It's actually a very good question and, and, and um, very current as well. Um, we have definitely seen that the Southeast Asian ecosystem in general has, has grown significantly over the last, uh, you know, seven, seven, eight years. Um, you know, our firm itself started as a smaller, smaller seed fund. Uh, we've now raised three funds. Um, it's funny how the maturity of the ecosystem um, immediately affects how you operate as a, as a venture capital firm. Um, I think the most important part is, I think all of our peers, um, and you know, of course us included, we, we kind of look at the ecosystem as a whole. Um, you, got, you can have a ton of early stage money and when there's no path towards an exit or there's no uh, growth venture capital or there's no late stage capital, it doesn't make any sense to be investing in the early stage because there's no exit for VCs and there's no path for founders to raise, to raise more capital. Um, so we're all very aware of what are the gaps that need to be filled within the ecosystem and, and how do we play a role? Um, so some funds you know, prefer to really play the, the pre-seed or the seed or the, the, the early stage, uh, the early stage um, um, ecosystem, but they also realize that they would need the follow-on investors or they build relationships with growth venture funds or, or maybe, maybe even PE funds or, or corporate VCs. So I think the maturity of the ecosystem or a maturing ecosystem um, automatically leads to that more funds will get more diversified uh, and will launch more products, uh, you know, keeping an early stage, keeping an early stage product and, and maybe launching a later stage product as well. I think what it does on the investment decision side, I think VCs will take a, even a more long-term approach uh, because if you are, so if you are an angel investor, your, your major concern might be, I would like to get my capital back within the next three to four years. Um, if you're if you're a VC, you know that you're going to be in for the for the, for the long run. But if you have more products in the market, you know both early stage and, and a little bit of later stage as well, you're able to perform to support your portfolio company longer and and through a longer life cycle. So you can go from you know C all the way up to Series B or or even Series C. That definitely impacts the way you look at your portfolio construction and the way you look at mm -hmm. inv investing into deals. Um, so yeah, very good question. Um, it does mean that the mindset will change of VCs and they'll, they'll look at, are we able to invest over a longer horizon as opposed to just investing in, in, in one part of the uh, one part of the cycle. I think it's also important. It's really important that founders understand that dynamic and how it impacts yes. them as well. Yeah. Like really understanding where a fund is at the time you're talking to them and where the alignment is inside the fund and how they're going to make decisions when you get to a COVID-19, next COVID, yeah, yeah. you know, black swan, what are they going to do? Understanding these dynamics to the best you can is a really important yeah. um, part of the education. Yeah, totally. Um, it's interesting. Um, I'm getting a few questions on, um, on ESOP. Um, so maybe before we, uh, before we head off, uh, we could sort of give, give, give a bit of uh, insight on that as well. In the absence of valuation at the early stage and the cost of preparing an ESOP, what is the strategy for equity allocation to early stage employees? Um, and another question was around when should, should companies be preparing for ESOP? Um, is it, you know, pre-round or, or, or is it always a post-round? Uh, what, what, what have you guys seen in your, in your practice? Well, the U.S., we even put the forms out for free, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I always tell people to um, separate the concept of allocation of equity from an ESOP. An ESOP to me is a tax and legal structure for granting equity. Yeah. Um, it is, but it, that's very different from do I give my employees equity? How much do I give them? The way you give people equity is is very much driven on the local tax and legal requirements about granting equity. Um, so I wouldn't be so focused on the format that you, how you grant the equity, whether it's an ESOP or direct grant of equity. Um, they have local flavors, how they impact it. But I would say most most early stage companies, you know, pre, um, pre-funding, if they have, you know, a law firm that, you know, can advise them, probably has an ESOP. Yeah. Um, and it's a good, it's a good, easy way to kind of grant equity and have the rules of the game set out. Correct. Yeah. This good founders that we have observed this, you know, so it's pattern recognition is that they've done exactly what Matt has said is that they've gone through the putative exercise of allocating and saying, Hey, for a CTO, this is where in relative to kind of on their Excel that, Hey, you know, next year, Q1, I'm going to need to hire such and such, and I've allocated or earmarked that this is potential equity. And oh, first they've crossed the bridge of, do I want to provide equity incentivization? Presumably more often than not, the answer to that is yes. Then they've gone through the exercise and usually, you know, and if they have good VCs, they're checking to say that, look, have you gone through this, ex- you know, have you gone through the process of kind of earmarking what is the quantum of capital so that you're properly incentivizing and able to bring in the team? And then exactly, right? Like whether the forms are available for free or a firm just has, you know, can more readily implement one for you, like the paperwork for it, that's step two. Um, I want to kick this off. There's, there's, uh, I have a final question for you guys, but this, this is a very interesting question. Um, as a VC, knowing that most of your investments will barely make a return, um, how do you stay emotionally committed to an investment? And how can a founder use the dynamic to help them? Um, so it is interesting, um, as an investor, yeah, it's a very, it's a very good question. And I think as an investor, um, you know, it, it, it kind of feels like, like dating sometimes, you know, the, the first dates are, are, are super exciting. Uh, but then, you, you know, you get into a, a longer relationship and you get to know each other better. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel as exciting as it was on day one. Um, you, you, it's difficult to, um, um, to stay a thousand percent committed to all of your portfolio company. You just have to be honest about it. You know, dynamics change, relationships change, so things change. Um, what most VCs do try to do is, you know, where can we honestly be helpful to you? And I'll, I'll give two examples. So for one company where the company has, inv- we've invested, you know, a significant amount of money, we're, we're on the board, uh, we, we have a lot of interaction with, with the founding team. Um, and that's kind of a natural, you, you'll, you'll help them, you'll talk to them more often. And there's a, there's a, a company where um, they're not asking for, for, for too much help. Uh, they're kind of fine on their own. Um, they're sort of, you know, uh, chugging along. So where do, you, where do you spend most of your time? So effectively, what we try to do is sort of every single month, um, do a sort of a pulse and a check-in to see where everyone is. Um, and it's relatively simple. And ask, hey, is there anything where you guys need help? Um, so just to give an example, in some cases, when the company is not doing so well, um, can we help them with a soft landing? Maybe there's a corporation that could use their skill set mm. and, and the company gets, gets acquired. I think it's very important for VCs to have that portfolio approach and, and, and definitely, you know, um, ourselves and, and our peers have it. For the main reason is 
you might miss something that could be extremely valuable to either your partners, your LPs, your other portfolio companies. Portfolio companies are acquiring other portfolio companies as well. So you want to make sure that you have that landscape and understand what is happening within um, within the portfolio. Honestly speaking, of course, you know when you have a board membership, when there is more interaction with a certain founder, naturally a bit more attention will, will go to that company. But in, in all honesty, if you want to build a good portfolio, you have to make sure that you have that overview and, and sort of that, that landscape landscape insight. Um, it's 701. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, you were, you were going to wrap up. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to add that this is a, as I'm always, this is why I'm a lawyer. I'm paid by the minute is, is that <laughs> is it, what you've decided, right? When people say like, oh, it's a life cycle. It's not a cliche, right? It is that smart and good VCs understand that there is a role that they play as a company evolves, yeah. right? In fact, a founder shouldn't want their VC in their business 24 seven after they've reached another stage or whether it's a growth or a late stage company. And the VCs who do it well, right? We've seen you guys, like when, we're on, uh, when we've represented the founders, where it's understanding that, hey, maybe the role changes to, okay, now it's about how can we be helpful, maybe providing strategic guidance to the founders as they're thinking through late stage investors. But it's understanding that it's, that just because I'm not calling you every day doesn't yeah. mean that I'm not being helpful to yeah. you. And that's really what life cycle to us implies. Yeah, very, very good point. Um, thank you everyone for, for tuning in. It's been an amazing afternoon. I want to thank Matthew Ferris, uh, for giving the really helpful, useful input. Um, I hope the founders and our peers and our colleagues, um, uh, I've enjoyed, <laughs> I've enjoyed this session. Um, sorry, we, we couldn't handle all the questions. We were getting a lot of them, um, uh, at the same time. We'll do our best to do some follow-ons as well. Uh, we'll send out a blog post with some very interesting links um, for you guys to review. Um, if I can ask you guys one question. Um, difficult times. Um, some founders are very nervous. Don't know what's happening. Don't know exactly what to do. What is the one piece of advice or you know, encouraging words that you want to give the founders uh, before, before wrapping up? Well, what I'd say is we've been through these cycles. Um, you know, this is a really, this is a really serious event. Um, but, you know, we've been through this, you know, we went through this in 2008 and we had one of the best stock markets in history after that. Um, so this, this shall pass um, and companies will fail, but great companies, I think will get funded and we will look back and say, wow, I can't believe that company was funded or formed in the middle of COVID-19. It will be just one of those. So I'd say remain optimistic always always think of uh you know the best outcome and you know and hopefully it comes true yeah yeah i think i mean i started my journey in asia in 2008 2009 in terms of building out an asia practice and so um what i would say is is that what i've observed really good founders have done in multiple cycles is stay committed to plan right if you undertook this i mean it takes a ton of stones to do that and so if you've undertaken that first level like stay committed to plan because the sun will reemerge. And the second thing is, is that really good founders use these as opportunities to re, you know, reassess that, look, do I need to make a marginal pivot in the business? Are there strategic opportunities? Maybe my competitors are going to move out of this market. And so should I be thinking? So it's almost a little bit of recognizing that when the sun does come out, it's that you're being a little bit more opportunistic um, and yeah, practical about how you, how you think about, you know, the next couple of years. Awesome.
Well, again, thanks so much. Um, thanks to Cooley. Um, thanks to BTCN. Uh, thanks to the Golden Gate Ventures team. You guys were amazing helping setting this up. And of course, thanks to our audience. Um, hopefully, we'll see you at the next um, online webinar. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks yes. very much.